Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Liz Manischel. And I am Ulrich Purcell. This week, we have writer-director Alim Hossein on the show to talk about his feature film, After We Leave, which he shot across roughly eight years with a tiny crew. Sometimes I smell as him and his cinematographer and his talent. They shot all on DSLRs, and uh, they stuck with it through all the digital upgrades over the years. I loved talking to Aleem. I thought he was like the coolest guy ever. And it's just wonderful to hear um, a story of someone who really dedicated themselves for eight years to one project, um, even on an insanely tiny budget. So uh, we hope you'll enjoy the conversation. But before we get to our conversation with Aleem, Ulrich. You got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So now that we have a very healthy and thriving YouTube channel, we are getting some pretty awesome <laughs> comments on our videos. You don't think it's healthy and thriving? 160 freaking followers, man. That's pretty good. You know? I mean, only because the Joe Bob Briggs episode is like all the views are mine. Like all 46 views, which you is- You watched it 46 times. <laughs> They're all mine. Yeah. <laughs> so. Nice. No, I mean, it's funny. I saw that jump right away, like 25 off the gate. I was like, oh man, that's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I guess they're all yours. So anyways, <laughs> we had a really good comment from Gary Candy on one of our videos. And uh, Gary had a, a question that he wanted to ask. So Gary says, I love the podcast. As a short filmmaker, the idea of editing a feature film sounds daunting. No kidding. What is your workflow <laughs> like for editing a feature? Do you break it down in multiple timelines for scenes or acts, or do you just do it as one massive timeline? Thanks. Uh, Liz, can you speak to this at all? Yeah, I mean, um, on Speed of Life, my latest feature, uh, I, my editor was just like an insanely fast, like she's just, I don't even know, she's like a machine, Josie Azam, <laughs> and she, I think she just edited in order. I'm sure she, actually we have a whole episode where she talks about how she edited it. But on True. my first feature, Bread and Butter, what, I, what we did, what I think was pretty interesting and that I had two editors and they split the film in half and they each edited half the scenes and did like one pass. And then they swapped the opposite person took the second pass and then we screened. Wow. And I really like that idea because it was the, it was, we were compromising two different styles into our own collaborative editorial style. Uh, and it divided the workload up into two you know, if you divided it into scenes, it, there were little bites. There are little bites for everyone to chew. It didn't feel like this massive upheaval of work, but I do think that you have a, a risk of losing a common thread if you do something like that. So you always have to be in communication with each other, but you just edited your feature yourself. So you probably had like every single trick in the book. Well, so what I did was um, I did break it down by scene, um, but for timeline. So each each scene had a timeline uh, for it. I would sometimes do multiple versions of that of that of that timeline of that sequence, just to like you know as changes happen adjust. And then as I got into more of the detailed sequences where it's like you know three or four scenes kind of intercutting all together, you know the way that scenes are broken down by script. 
then it kind of became like, oh, this is this is the scene 60 through 65 chunk, you know, which is this sequence, you know, and then that that was what I would put together. And then once I kind of got all the sequences done, I then just dropped them into a timeline. And I kind of like sort of as I went, I would sort of add to the timeline, this this one massive timeline. So they all were kind of in there. And then at first I, I pl- played with the idea of, you know, just dropping the sequence alone in there. So it would be like one little chunk. And then I would only make the edits to the sequences within the timelines. But I tried that and it was terrible, terrible. So then I just decided to just take the actual, every clip, every file from uh, the individual uh, scene sequences or chunks basically and then threw that into the timeline. And then once I was there, I pretty much just edited out of the timelines of the, of the massive, massive one, and then just would make changes within that cut. And then sometimes I would go and, and make the adjustments in the individual scenes. But like what I basically knew was that if I cut a scene down a lot within the major timeline, I could always go back to the individual scene timeline. And then like, I would have all the footage, I'd have my selects in that timeline sequence and then I would have um, the, my original vision for the scene in that in that original timeline. So it was kind of nice because, like, you know, I would I was chopping like crazy. We cut down so much, you know, and that like if I wanted to look at an angle I liked again or something that I missed after I had made you know some massive cuts, I could always go back to those timelines and find it there easily. Yeah. So I'd probably recommend that, you know, especially if you're um, editing your own movie, just to have everything, you know, in a way that's pretty organized. Uh, that was helpful but but yeah talk about daunting like I almost like I was like kind of panicking when I first started editing I was like how am I gonna edit this movie right you're like basically done I'm basically done I'm actually um making a visual effects sequence right now um that I'm gonna send to uh my colorist and then he's gonna send um the plate files to the visual effects artist so hopefully I'll finish that sequence today send it over to him today or tomorrow and then hopefully over the weekend He'll be providing um, the files for uh, the visual effects team. But it's uh, we're making movies, know. and while you're making movies, it's a long process. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully that's helpful. I mean, I'm sure everybody else has different ways of doing it, but I, I do think multiple uh, timelines for scenes is helpful, just because there's so much footage. If I didn't do that, I would. I don't know where all my selects would live. I don't know where. I mean, it would just get too out of control if you didn't do that. So something that Josie talked about on the episode that we did with her was note cards, which I thought were really helpful. Uh, is like printing out a screen grab of the scene and putting it as a note card on your wall, or she put it on her revolving closet door, because I've never edited whatever I've done has never been edited to script, if that makes sense. Like you would do the first cut to script, but then it never stays that way. So like big picture looking outside of your computer and seeing what, what are the scenes that you have in front of you at all times, I think would be cool. Nice. Yeah. We, sorry, we had one more question from Brendan Thatcher. So yeah. Thank you, Brendan, by the way, uh, for, you know, supporting our Patreon. It's amazing. This is what Brandon says. He says, thanks, Liz and Ulrich. I've appreciated the podcast throughout the past few years that I've been listening. I've listened to every episode. Holy oh my shit. Gosh. 284, 285 episodes. Holy oh moly, gosh. man. That's insane. 
and he always looks forward to new ones each week. And then he loves, he'd love a sticker to put on the back of his MacBook Pro. It's in the mail. It's Brendan. It's coming. It's probably there by the time you listen to this. So you have to send us um, a picture of your MacBook Pro with the Making Movies is Hard, um, you know, sticker on it. Hopefully out in the wild. Although we can't really go to cafes right now anyways to work. It kind of sucks. I guess there's outdoor ones, but um, thank you so much, Brendan. Much appreciated. So if you want to be like Brendan Thatcher or um, the wonderful Gary Kennedy, you can do all things. Like you can go on YouTube and leave a comment like uh, Gary did, or you can go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast, and you can give us a dollar. Uh, $3 will get you the sticker that Brendan got, um, or $5 will get you nothing but nothing, love. Just and I love. Think $9 gets you the pin, right? That's yeah. where you get the pin. Okay, so the $9, you want that sexy pin, which I have in my house. So nice. Then you could do that. Um, and lastly, uh, you could just jump over that Instagram page of ours. Um, and if you haven't subscribed or liked or whatever they do over there on Instagram, do that. And then you can also go to our YouTube page to subscribe to our YouTube page because that's, we're trying to build those numbers. I called it thriving and healthy and Liz like almost laughed out of her chair earlier. You know, sure, we don't even have a thousand subscribers yet, but we will one day, guys. I swear we will. I promise. But Liz, you've got something for us, right? Oh, I've got a short film to talk about and get shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. All right, so this week we have one of my favorite things we've had to watch for the show, a short film called It's Not Custard by Kate McCoy. Oh, man. I don't think we should say anything in the, in like the very, there's like a small chance that someone's like, oh, I'm going to watch the short now. I'm going to put a pause on this podcast and watch you the should. short. I'm going to talk like this should. too. <laughs> um, yes, we won't say anything until you go and you watch this short. Um, but then- after you press pause, you'll be able to hear um, Kate McCoy herself talk about all, all things It's Not Custard. Hi, Liz and Ulrich. Thank you so much for having me on the Making Movies is Hard podcast. I'm excited to be here and excited to contribute to this segment. My name is Kate McCoy. I'm the writer-director of It's Not Custard, a British comedy short, which I'm here to talk to you about. So why make a short instead of any other medium? For me, basically, it's because it's all I had experience in. I spent two years at college and two years at university studying film where all I'd done is shorts. So I wrote Custard a year after I left university and it just seemed the natural thing to do to continue with that, with short films. And basically, Custard was never meant to happen. I had one crazy productive night where I had written three short films and the next day I took them into work to bug my co-workers at the time I was working on a feature film in editorial and I gave it to the first assistant editor and he read all three and he came back and he said custard's the one custard's funny you should actually do something with it and I was like no I, you know I wrote it for a laugh it's not I don't know but then he'd already sent it to someone else and then it got sent to someone else and then it got back to me and these people were asking me, well, when, when are you making this then? Uh, so it was peer pressure that made this happen, <laughs> uh, essentially. And 
we we don't really have money available to make short films so when our producer Alison Robluski came on board the two of us worked really hard to put together an Indiegogo campaign to raise the funds we needed to shoot it. Our goal was 10,000. I believe we reached 7,205. Thank you to all of our backers. And because we had the, I think it's flexible funding, we got to keep that. But obviously when you do crowdfunding, you lose a certain amount of money for the services of Indiegogo, of course. But we still made it happen. We didn't hit we didn't hit our goal. We lost an extra grant of fees, but we made it work. And that honestly, a lot of that is down to Alison because she was great with the budget. Thank you, Alison. And also down to our cast and crew. It just I'm so grateful for all of the work that they put in for this short. And it and it shows, it really shows. Honestly, before I made this short, I had I had zero expectations as to what how it would affect my career in any way um I just needed to do something I just I just needed to have a short um that was outside of an educational place and this one made me laugh and it made other people laugh and it felt like it felt like the most natural one to put the time and money into I don't want to be over the top but the uh, Making this, making custard did and has changed my life. Uh, I know that sounds, it really has. It really has. I put together a festival plan. I didn't expect anything. Um, we got into a, a couple of short films, uh, short film festivals, and I thought that was going to be it for us. I believe uh, we got into Exit Six Film Festival, Sick and Wrong Film Festival, where we won our award for sickest film um then we got into london short film festival and underwire and i thought that that was that was great for me that was amazing it was more than i ever expected i met so many good friends uh the sick and wrong film festival was incredible it, it i i have made friends from that festival alone that I speak to daily we are in film projects together and it makes such a difference because uh, prior to this I just felt I felt really I felt on the outside of the filmmaking community and I you know rightfully I was brand new I'd come out of education I hadn't really done anything so why why would I necessarily have a community of people of like-minded people and the added bonus that we won an award so that was brilliant the bubble had got bigger of people that I knew who were interested in the same things and it does make a difference I thought that custard was pretty much done that we'd had our run with these with these fests that we'd done and then in January I think 2019 we got the email that we'd been accepted into South by Southwest which was ridiculous, um, utterly ridiculous. I I remember being on my way to work and just stopping and being like, what? Uh, right. And immediately made the plans to make that happen. Uh, I, I called my mom and she was like, well, I'm coming with you. <laughs> and she, she didn't have a passport. She's never been to America. And I was like, yep, 
okay, we are we are on our way. And she did, she did come with me. No, none of our cast or crew could make it, but oh man, that was something else. It, it was completely unexpected. It was an experience I'll never forget. I have made so many friends from it um, that have made a difference uh, to, to my life uh, and to my career. I believe directly because I went to South by Southwest, that Custard went to South by Southwest, that is the reason why we were then picked up by Channel 4's Random Acts. Um, and we were part of the 2019 program, which was insane. Uh, when I first wrote Custard, my sister had said to me, maybe maybe this can end up on Channel 4's Random Acts. And I was like, no, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it works like that. I'm not really sure. And then, I, and then I was the one messaged her like, you were right. This has happened. This has come around. This is crazy. And please excuse me for just the inarticulation. It was, it was, it was super, it was just a crazy, exciting time. And I had not expected any of it at all. Moving on from, you know, what, what is, how has it affected my career? In, in the last month, I ran a crowdfunding campaign for my next short film, My First Dick. And my word, the amount of people who donated who I have met in the last year because of film festivals were an extraordinary amount in the list of, of names that we had I think we hmm, I think we had 180 people donate altogether and at least two-thirds of those were people that I've met in the last year and a half uh, it just makes a difference because it's so hard there's no there's no funding really out there, especially for comedy shorts. It, it, you know, it's subjective. People find different things funny. And I think it makes, it makes funding, it makes the people with the money anxious. You know, is this gonna be funny? Is it worth sinking our money into when you don't really get anything back from shorts in terms of cash? So to have other filmmakers be like, yeah, let's get this let's get this done let's make this let's make your film happen meant so much to me and it, that is directly because of custard and where it went I don't mean to sound so like gushy I just am I just am lucky that this short has opened um so many doors of lovely people uh god that was a lot of positivity wasn't it maybe I should say something a bit crap instead um, I spent a lot of money on festivals that said no, but that's part of, that's part and parcel, isn't it? Um, now that it's out in the world, what purpose does custard serve? Well, I'm hoping that it, it serves a purpose for any other weirdos who have strange ideas they're not sure will play well, because they, they will, they do. Turns out people do like your darkest, you know, thoughts most of us have very similar thoughts we just don't say them out loud um enjoyment I hope it, I hope if you if someone comes across it it makes them laugh because it is silly uh there's a lot of seriousness and it's it's similar with my next short you may not question your life after watching these any these films that I've made but it might make you and feel a bit better so that's that's generally that's what I'm aiming for what purpose does it serve some comedic brevity 
which we all need, really. And that's that's me. That's everything. That's everything I have to say about custard. I hope you enjoyed that. It's just been really cool what's happened with this short. Uh, Liz, Ulrich, thank you so much for having me and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Ulrich, what did you think about this film? Oh my God. First off, this movie is crazy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's so crazy. It's so fun. It's uh, it's kind of hard to watch it sometimes, but I, I love it for it, that, that it just really went for it. So I'm just going to, I wrote a bunch of notes because I watched it uh, last night and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I love the way that they set up this like kind of ultimate evil or unfair world or whatever you want it to, to be. It's like the clear villain that like our hero is good and, and everyone else who's against her is bad. Yes. And, and, and I love those things because I kind of did that in one of my short films in Brother. I kind of like make one character like the most terrible person in the world and it's like clearly you have to hate this person so I love that they did that because I think that's fun in movies the practical effects are dope that's pretty much the only way you can describe it it's pretty damn amazing and the way they introduce them is amazing and the way it comes out in the in the end or second half of the movie is amazing it's kind of hard to watch but it's it's pretty awesome i have to say i didn't necessarily love the vo and and i and i've talked about this a million times i don't like vo in movies i'm not as big of a vo fan i think it can be used well whatever and i think this movie definitely deserves vo more than other movies do and i think it did work well within the structure of the story the thing i didn't like about the vo is that the vo this british voice you know which is like speaking over a, a little girl, there was times where the voice was reacting as if it was the the character's inner monologue. Yeah. And it was like weird, like, yeah. like what? Like, no, like that shouldn't really be. Like, why is, is her inner monologue a British man? It like, played with the convention of the narrator, right? The narrator as, as like- um, Yeah. Is like a placeholder for the main character. Yeah. I, I thought that was odd, but maybe it was good. I don't know. It was just different. And then the one last thing I wanted to say, two more things. Visual style, amazing throughout a whole movie. So, so good. And then I can't believe this thing only has 2,300 views. Like this this movie deserves so much more than that. Disappointed I mean, with society. 5,000. I mean, come on, people. Like this is this is cool stuff. Yeah. I think that goes to show how difficult it is to, to get a movie seen these days. Because like, you know, Kate made an awesome movie. It looks amazing. It sounds amazing. It played South by. It played South by. Holy shit. You know, and now it, it sits on YouTube with 2,300 views. It's just like, that should be a Vimeo staff pick, man. That should be getting upwards to 50,000, 100,000 views easy. <laughs> what did you think? Um, I think it has dethroned the long drive to, whatever that amazing film that I was obsessed with. Yeah, Long Drive to Yakin. Yakin, yeah. I love that movie. It has dethroned it um, because I really like disgusting. I love movies that like are provocative, that gross people out, that make people uncomfortable. Um, and that's totally what this was. And I, I wrote Kate after I saw it and I was like, oh my God, Kate, I love it. And she wrote like, something like ha 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 yeah it's an acquired taste or something something that was like not a lot of people like it but the people who like it really like it um so that was me um I loved how gross it was I loved how it made me want to throw up (laughs) and and I had never seen anything um I that took like body horror to that absurd degree 
And I think this is like a good example of like you were saying, like why we do this segment is because more people should see this on YouTube or whatever platform Kate wants people to see it. It should be more popular than it is, right? That should overflow yeah. to the YouTube link. And we hope that um, our highlighting of it will help just a tiny little bit. Just the smallest bit, if anything. But yeah, I think without uh, further ado, we should get to our conversation with Aleem. We're here with Aleem Hossein. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we're going to hit you with some rapid fire questions about your film after we leave. Uh, first question, how many days did you shoot the film? It took us uh, a period of seven years, but that was actually only about 45 uh, uh, days of shooting just over a very long time period. Oh my God, I'm dying to hear about that. All right, um, uh, what was the budget? If you could talk about it or uh, tell about, us what you could tell. Sure, yeah, no, it was about $30,000 um, with a lot of freebies. And then how long did you work on the film from the inception to being uh, released? Almost uh, about nine years, if you count from idea to when we were seeing it um, in theaters in Hollywood, that was wow. nine years. Oh I God. thought it'd be six months, by the way. My plan was I'm going to do it in six months. I, a long <laughs> six months was my first. It's a very long <laughs> engagement. Um, how big was your crew? Most of the time it was me, my DP, and the actors. That was it. So, you know, very often, and, and if you've seen the film, you know, oftentimes one actor. So very often three people was the entire crew. And then out of all the projects you've made, how difficult was this one? Uh, it was honestly the like hardest thing I'd ever done, but also the first project I'd ever done where I could learn from my mistakes on the project and apply them to that project. So in a way it got easier over time because we were shooting it that way. And so I could learn some stuff and keep going. So the endurance was the hard part, but the filmmaking got easier as I was learning more. Yeah, you have to get like, into that. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you go ahead, Liz, ask your question. Could you give an example of like what you learned and how you applied that in the seven year span? So, I mean, we were shooting with a DSLR and, you know, I feel like you do camera tests, right? When you get ready to shoot a film, but uh, there are many times I, when I shoot a short film, I get to the end and they'd be like, you know, now that I look at the footage, the gear we had, the crew we had, like that kind of shot, that looks great. But when we did this other kind, so for us, like we really started to feel like, it's a, this is a very technical answer, but like certain kinds of tracking shots, the rolling shutter didn't look so good. Um, why didn't I just do more follows instead of, you know, horizontal, like, you know, tracks, technical like that, but I could see it and be like, well, let's just do more of that now. Or honestly, performance-wise, I'd be like, okay, it's run and gun. It, I love Magic Hour, but man, you only get a few takes. That take was the best. What did I do there? Where was I? Yeah, I should just start off with the, like, with, with you know, just go right, don't warm up. Just give your bit, one big note and do it right away. Then play with the nuance. You know, like, I basically started to learn, like, given our circumstances, very little crew, very little time, but we had almost no expenses, so we could always try again, that I should just always take more risks like the whole point of the process was like don't ever be conservative don't do that thing where you're like it's a seven day shoot if i if i don't get my pages today the whole thing's doomed i wanted to completely reinvent that and so the thing i kept learning was that i wasn't being risky enough that if it's just three people going out with a dslr that we already own there's no downside beyond our time and oftentimes we weren't even shooting full day so it wasn't like we were giving up our other work we'd meet in the morning shoot one shot you know by the side of the highway to get sunrise and then go off to our day jobs. But I was surprised even with the idea of like, I wanna take more risks, still that conservative like film shoot mindset of like, if you don't, what if that shot doesn't mess up? You know, what if it messes up, we're not gonna get what we need. And I feel like that whole mentality that comes from the fact that normal production costs so much, 
it invades our brains, even as indie filmmakers. And so, yeah, over time, I quickly realized, like, no, I need to be more nervous every day. And so, like, I had this rule of, like, if I don't have butterflies in my stomach when I show up to set, I'm being too conservative or I've, like, I haven't yet, like, risked enough, essentially. Wow. And so I just learned that as a person. I think when I came to filmmaking, I loved all the parts you could most control. I thought, like, editing is my favorite part of the process. It's just me and I can control it. And I found on set sort of nerve-wracking the actors. I didn't understand that. <laughs> and I've completely, I've completely flipped as a filmmaker now. Like my favorite part of the process is that moment of like unknown on set with like great actors and a great cinematographer. I love that. Uh, and actually now, I, actually I take less pleasure in the editing process now than I used to and much more from being on set. So let's let's travel back in time um, to to nine years ago when you said that you're going to make this movie in six months. Um, let's talk about like what your setup was and like how you got started. So you obviously went out and bought a disc DSLR. Did you already know who you wanted to have as your DP? Was it like a friend of yours? Like how did you find that team? Yeah, I mean, the, even when I thought it would be six months, I knew that I was sort of asking people to do a thing that was a little bit atypical, which was I mean not so atypical, but they weren't going to get paid. And I wanted to shoot incrementally, you know? And so I knew that I needed people, not that I could just convince to come up, show up for that one Saturday. I needed people who were going to stay with me through a whole project that I thought would take half a year. And I had a pitch. The pitch was like, look, if we do this, we have time to try another performance moment in an alternate take. We have time to do this, like, what if it's a, you know, a master shot, mostly in shadow, and that covers the scene. We can take that risk. Let's try it. You know, and I, mean, I knew that was an attractive pitch, but still I knew even when you're offering people things they don't normally get to do in their normal filmmaking work or other jobs, still six months, random here and there. If I lost anybody, I was going to be in trouble. So I went with the initial group of people was people that I knew very well. Uh, Julie Kirkwood, who shot the movie, who, you know, she shot Destroyer with Nicole Kidman. She and I have worked together for years. We met uh, when I was in film school at uh, UCLA. And, you know, she's an amazing available light cinematographer and she doesn't get to do certain things on certain, even on the big movies she does where she has a great director, you can't do everything. And so I said, look, what are the rules? You, what do you want to do? And she was like, I hate how DSLRs look between like 10 and two <laughs> uh, uh, it, during the day, just bright light from above doesn't look great. Um, and everything's overlit, you know, in big movies. And I love that stuff. And, and so she said, just promise me we won't shoot white wall departments or, um, you know, or, or overhead sunlight, and let's make a beautiful, beautiful movie for no money. And I was like, great. And then my lead actor, I, he was the actor, one of the supporting actors in my thesis film at UCLA. My wife actually had seen him in another audition uh, when we were way back in film school. And she came home from this random film school audition and was like, I saw this actor today. He was so wrong for the nice boyfriend role we were casting in my friend's film. But oh my God, you're gonna work with him. <laughs> Because there was just something about him. And so Brian and I, Brian Silverman and I, you know, uh, met back then. And again, when I knew that I needed an actor, someone who was going to be like, I'm going to play a character for you. I won't drop out. I'll be there for the whole process. I will dig into a unpaying role, uh, committing to a character that is not particularly likable, um, going for, you know, uh, a long shooting period. I needed someone who was really going to buy in. And Brian was that guy. We trusted each other. And, you know, he'd never gotten to be the lead in a feature. I mean, the same thing. I was like, what do you want? What's what you never get to do? And he said, just promise me as often as possible, I can always have one more take. Mm. Um, and again, I could, I could make that promise because we weren't shooting in this, like, we're going to sprint through this movie 
And that was the start of it. And then everyone else who came on board, um, like we had one AC, who, uh, Brett, who did a lot of the movie with us whenever I was, I, I'm not a very good focus puller. So whenever it was complex, I'd call up Brett. He was one of the few like paid people on the set most days. A lot of the other actors were either actors I'd worked with or that Brian knew through acting class or that kind of thing. I don't actually think that there was a, like anybody who has a major role in the film who was sort of unknown to me until we got to post. In post, I did hire some new people but all of production, because I just knew it was a slog. And then of course, as it drifted into several years, when I say seven years, what I really mean there is like, the shooting in all honesty was about five of that. And then there's two years of post with some pickups. The reason it took that long was life, um, you know, <laughs> right. because I, I never wanted to rush. I never wanted to just cram it all in. Things happened, you know, Julie got a couple other features. She went off and just shot, you know, and I had in that time period, my wife and I had two kids, you know, and, and she's a, you know, a working television writer, you know, so it was really about balancing all that. And in the middle, I despaired that it would ever finish, but we just kept pushing. And I feel really lucky uh, that we got it done. And I feel like all the lessons I took from it, I want to do on the next film. I just want to do it faster than five, five years of shooting, you know. <laughs> um, but I do think the idea of we were never worried about money on set. And so because of that, we never, I mean, I'm not saying it means every choice came out perfectly. In fact, we fell on our face several times, but that what was nice was there was no cost to that beyond our time. And we had set aside the time, you know, Brian said to me at the beginning of the process, look, in a given year, he says, I take X number of acting class hours, which is like a hobby of mine to like, you know, keep my acting sharp. I'll just make those hours this movie, you know, and I blocked that time out. And in fact, at a certain point when we were low on money, some of that $30,000 is he took his budget for acting classes that year and put it into the movie. Everyone had the same problem. I saw him get better as an actor. At, at the height of it, you know, a couple times a month, we were out shooting a scene and he was getting to act. I was getting to direct. Julie was shooting. All of us got better. I, I guess a lot of things come up with the sense of it being um, a nine year process. And the first thing that I'm thinking about is continuity. And if you're such a small <laughs> yeah. team, like how are you, are you looking at the footage right before you shoot? Like who's overseeing hair length? Who's overseeing wardrobe? The, the, the shorter answer is we weren't always perfect. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's okay. You know, like I feel like in, the, the longer I do this, the more I feel like there are very few of those continuity problems that actually kill you, that actually hurt the project. You know, a lot of them can be solved in editorial. Some of them don't get noticed. A few of them, eh, it's a minor problem. But the way we really handled it was, I mean, I would snap an iPhone picture of everybody when they came on set and of every location, and I could just look back at it on my phone. And then I, I basically told the actors, like, look, I'm giving you a thing, which is, like, you can you can try different things. You can experiment. Your character is your own. Uh, I'm giving you one other responsibility, though, which is you need to help me with continuity. And sometimes actors would come back after a long, long time, but mostly Brian was the through line. And the other supporting cat actors were actually shooting in a relatively compressed amount of time as we moved through the city of LA. And with Brian, in the movie, he has this like backpack, which in the movie holds like whatever, he doesn't have a home at this point in the movie. And, but in reality, in the backpack, that's where he would keep the two shirts he wore in the movie and his clippers, which had a number four guard, which was the Jack haircut, <laughs> Jack's character. So before we shot every time, he would take the clippers out shave the head wow. and he was good and the one thing i just oh my god i got so lucky a week before we shot he said to me hey uh do you think jack could have like a, like a five o'clock shadow it's only six months i can probably keep that consistent <laughs> and i thought about it and i was like i don't know man six months it might be hard to do let's skip it 
like four years into the movie, I was like, oh, God, I made that choice. Um, and, and by the way, I think some of those choices, you do get lucky. Like I went back and found this old notebook of mine where I had like three potential ideas for a micro budget feature. And I can see after we leave circled, like I chose that one. And that's the one I was going ahead of. And I looked at those other two and I think I again got lucky. Like I loved all three of them at the time, but one of them, um, I just, I don't think I would have stayed in love with this many years. It just, I changed mm. the person. This is what it was about thematically. And then the other one, it now feels very derivative. Like just so many other movies came out along similar lines and stuff. And so I was like, whew. I picked one that I managed to stay in love with for that many years. Um, so, so I have a series of like t more technical questions, like no permits, right, yeah. obviously, right? Like you're just gorilla the whole time. Yeah. And you know, as you guys know, it's like when, when you're running around without a tripod, especially you're largely handheld. We had a, we had a shoulder rig, but you know, a, a pretty low budget one, just me and Julie, many times we would, we got approached by security a few times and, and the cops once and every single time, only once they approached us, did they realize we were filming. Like one cop came up to us and was like, we were like, oh man, he's busting us. But he was like, hey guys, you know, this meeting is not a safe place to stand. I wouldn't want uh, you guys to get hurt. Oh, oh, are you filming? <laughs> yeah. and, and then with security guards too, like sometimes like we were filming at like, and like office parks or different buildings. They just thought we were standing around in kind of a weird way. And then they'd be like, oh, oh, you have a camera. But other than that, yeah, we just filmed everywhere all over LA. And that was part of my goal was like, there's so many cool places in LA that we don't see on film. Some of which, by the way, in the course of this movie, have vanished because of gentrification. Like there's literally places I couldn't go and reshoot <laughs> wow, because they changed. Wow. So the entire thing was no permits and we, it was literally never an obstacle. We didn't, you know, because again, if we did get hassled- you just move. Yeah, it didn't matter. Yeah. So, and then the other thing really quick, just to get out of the way, like what, tell us what your camera setup was. And you mentioned pulling focus. Like, are you doing that just off the camera? Do you have a wireless follow focus? Like what's your system? So we had um, a, it was a Canon 7D. Oh my God. I owned two prime lenses at the time. Wow. Um, we got a knockoff, like, you know, ordered it on eBay shoulder rig and follow, like manual follow wow. focus and a little onboard monitor to make the screen a little bit bigger on top of the 7D. And, you know, one of the things I really have to say, like, I think it was extensive prep. It was knowing what it did well, but honestly, Julie Kirkwood, you know, as the world now knows, she's been shooting bigger movies. She's an amazingly gifted DP if you let her do her thing. And one of the best compliments I can pay to Julie Cinematography is every time I tell someone it was shot in the 7D, the reaction yeah. is like, what? That's my reaction. And, I, and again, I don't even want, <laughs> yeah, that's not my, I don't want to take credit for that. Like, I, I think like I knew that she could do yeah. that. And one of our goals was like, you know, look, there is a look to DSLR films. There's like an era that will snapshot in time, which is like a certain like, you know, 2000, what do we think? 2010 to 2015, where a lot of indie films look the same. And my whole goal was like, look, I want to make a movie. Like, I'm not going to make money off this movie. I'm not trying to make a movie that like, you know, will be a four quadrant, you know, blockbuster. I want it to be, and, and I'm actually not afraid to say this sounds pretentious. I want it to be a piece of art, you know? And that's not to say that it is the greatest movie ever made, but more like I'm aspiring to working in an artistic medium, you know, a visual medium, an auditory medium, an emotional medium. And Julie really convinced me. She was like, look, don't go blow the budget on a fancier camera. Let's take this one and just be restrict ourselves with how we use it. And if we do that, we can get some really, really beautiful images. And the proof in that is, you know, no one thinks it's crazy when photographers take amazing photographs with the 7D. 
at the time, the Canon 7D was a revolutionary camera. It was a, sec it was a second camera for many professional photographers, right? And so if you just think about what makes their photographs good, and that's oftentimes like careful framing, paying attention to light, um, and playing to its strengths, uh, you can do that with motion. And so we just did that. You know, I, I love what Julie did with it because the, the film has a look all of its own. And, and, and I, I feel very gratified by that. I want to talk a little bit about genre because we're in a unique situation right now where yeah. we're actually all three sci-fi directors which is crazy yes. to me. And I, I was thinking about this. I was like, yes. I think Aleem's probably on the, like the tighter end of the <laughs> spectrum in terms of like hard sci-fi. And then I'm on the soft end of the spectrum for sci-fi. And then I think already mm -hmm. you're in the middle, but I, this is all just speculation. There's a carefulness you have to play with the sci-fi audience. Have you been a sci-fi fan your whole life? Was your goal to make some sort of cultural statement with your film? Like why sci-fi? I mean, I have been a sci-fi fan my whole life. Um, like at the risk of sounding sort of overly emotional, like sci-fi like changed my life. As a mixed race kid, like growing up in, uh, you know, like a sort of really small Connecticut town, but in this super diverse family, like I was really lucky to like see all these like crazy films from all over the world. Like my parents, like, you know, we watched Bollywood and European art house. Uh, and, but one of the things that I saw was like science fiction from all over. And then Star Wars and Star Trek were a huge influence on me. But like, as a kid who like wasn't quite sure how we fit in and was a little bit nerdy and had a close group of friends, but was never like the most popular kid, sci-fi was like the first thing I found where I was like, oh man, like this is my thing. Like I can be the best at being a fan of this, at like knowing about it. And as I've gotten older though, like this thing has happened, right? Where if you had told me when I was, you know, a middle schooler that by the time I was 30 or 40, the biggest movies in the world would be sci-fi and comic book <laughs> movies. I would not have believed you. And yet here we are. And unfortunately, like, I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. Like, I do like some of the Marvel movies. I love the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek. Wonder Woman. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. Like, to me, like, there's so much to like about a lot of them, but I'm not, like, I'm not universally blown away by them. And I'm, the thing I'm most dissatisfied with is, like, the lack of like just different kinds of storytelling happening right i wanted to yes i was making a very pointed sort of uh gesture with the film which is to say like i think that you can make an indie like crime drama or really i think of it honestly as a as an indie drama about a really flawed guy like a 70s film that happens to be a sci-fi film like an american you know an indie and and another thing that I, again i was really pointedly gesturing at was a, one of the things that i don't like about a lot of the um big vfx movies these days is i feel like the point of view of the camera is always like i'm so blown away like every time there's a visual effects element or a cool costume or anything the camera and by proxy the audience is like is like literally responding to you like let's, mm -hmm. let's focus on that let's be like mm -hmm. whoa look at that ship look at that suit look at that gun and to me that what that feels like is oh yeah what that is is like a 2020 filmmaker is shooting a film in the future and so they're blown away by it too and what i wanted to do was be like if what's my films in the future i want to make it feel like it was shot by filmmakers from that exact year in the future and if they're filmmakers from that year that phone or that computer is completely uninteresting to them and the camera will respond that way and so you know over and over again we talked about like we are with very few exceptions maybe the you know there's an opening rocket launch at the beginning of the film the visual effects should never be 
the first thing the audience is noticing. And I was convinced that what would happen on the, on the audience side was that like indie film fans would embrace me, but sci-fi fans might be dubious. And in fact, at least on the festival circuit, the opposite <laughs> has happened. On the festival circuit, most of the like mainstream indie festivals didn't even accept me. I got rejected by 20 festivals in a row. But then the sci-fi circuit totally embraced me. And I won awards there. I think because they liked having sci-fi that was like a, a, was different. You know, they liked having this like variety of sci-fi films at their festivals. And it was always funny to me because like when I, now that I'm actually getting released, I actually think sci-fi fans are a little dissatisfied with my film. It's not um, super focused on tech or this and that. It's much more social. Um, but on the initial end, I was completely wrong. Like, uh, I think because maybe still there's some bias against the idea of science fiction and aspirations to serious drama or serious art. Well, this is a very deep conversation I could have with you about this because I have lots of thoughts about sci-fi and, you know, as great storytelling and great movies and the things that sci-fi can do and like some of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time, people don't necessarily take all that seriously. They like kind of look at them as, you know, action movies or whatever. And like, they, they miss the point, you know, like Starship Troopers is like oh an amazing God. example. Like, I mean, for, that's a movie for our time right now. Right. Sure. Absolutely. It's like this <laughs> movie about fascism and people completely didn't understand it when it came out and probably still today. And uh, they just see the glitz and the, the big effects and they don't really focus on what the movie's really about. I love that that's what you're trying to do. And I think that's like what most sci-fi filmmakers are, are most likely trying to do. Like, I don't think any of us who make sci-fi are thinking about, oh, let's just like deliver the sci-fi action elements and that's good. Like, forget story. I think we're all story first. But yeah, it's good to hear that you're keeping that in your mind the whole time. But yeah, and it's also, I mean, I haven't seen the whole movie, but like just watching your trailer, like you seem to deliver a lot on the sci-fi expectations, you know? Cause I think that's another part of it is like, You've got to bring in the effects and, and the stuff. The ace, I have, the ace in the hole that I have is my brother. My brother, Blaze Hussein, is a, 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 a huge visual, visual effects artist in Hollywood. I was super lucky. And again, like one of the reasons the movie took so long is that I would only get him for a few weeks at a time and then he'd be off doing, you know, he actually, I think he worked on the RoboCop oh, reboot wow. um, during, you know, during. And, but again, he was the kind of guy, even if he wasn't my brother, I could make the same pitch. Like I said to him, I was like, look, what do you not get? to do in your day job and you know his answers were funny he was like well first of all uh they always make me simplify the, the user interface display and it always has to be blue um and so if you go look at like one scene in my movie that has a major user interface and it is very complex and very yellow you know <laughs> and you know and he was the one who sort of really taught me with like some very careful prep how i could keep my indie improvised approach but still integrate visual effects. And again, that was things like I, I didn't want to make one of those movies where you could feel like, oh, here's where they locked off the camera and uh, you know told everyone to stand on those marks so they could get that you know uh, visual effect in there, or or oh yeah, here's the bad compositing where they put the background in. You know, um, we didn't want to do any of that. Uh, and so he and I spent a lot of time sort of talking the process over and doing tests. And whenever he was free, you know, we we could do visual effects during the film and see what worked. Oh, that worked. We could do more of that later. Or that didn't work. We should try to find another way to do that. I am glad to have those elements because I do think they are some people's way into the movie. The trailer is, I think, more straightforward and more filled with sci-fi than the film. Uh, but, you know, like all trailers are a little bit of a bait and switch, right? I'm hoping my... Right, right, of course. But it worked. You know, like I think it has brought people to the film. And then from there, look, then they will decide if the movie is within their taste. 
Uh, and it's been great to see, I'm, I'm fascinated by both reactions. Some people who are like, oh, you know, I didn't think I liked sci-fi, but I really liked this movie. Um, and then other people who are like, look, I'm a sci-fi fan. It wasn't really my cup of tea, but that was something different, you know? And either way, I think like, I'm just, I'm interested to sort of see those reactions. Um, another sci-fi related question, it, it's just, I asked because it's something I struggled with, is how do you, how do you uh, lay in exposition into dialogue, into story when you have to set the scene of like a future world? Like it's, it's done so in elegantly so often um, that I'm curious to what, what has worked for you. For me, I think uh, that issue aligns with another sort of deep instinct I have, which is just the way I like movies, which is I'm really comfortable. In fact, I really enjoy not knowing everything up front. And so with this movie, for sure, uh, I was actually committed to an idea of like, we will not fully understand this character or this world for at least 20 minutes. Um, and I'm okay with that. Like, we'll learn some things. If there is a sort of pleasure to watching the film, it's that, especially in the first 20, 30 minutes, a, a lot is opaque to us, and we're trying to figure that out. Um, and that's just the kind of movie that I like. And so not feeling the burden to be like, oh, man, you know, eight minutes in, everybody needs to know every single fact and all the stakes, which, by the way, I don't have an issue with those movies. In fact, that's the, that's the formula for some really powerful filmmaking. You know, you go watch the Pixar movies, I mean, they're just masters at like, wow, eight minutes in, I know everything and I am in. Uh, it's a different kind of movie. Like I like the audience doing some work. Like you're saying was you can feel it when you're doing it, right? When you're writing, we all cheat a little bit, but at a certain point, you know, in the, on set or, or when you're writing or even an editorial, like, ooh, yeah, that scene, that one line dialogue, the only reason that's there is, is because it needed, that fact needed to come out. Or the only reason we have those two extra shots in the middle of that scene is to show that thing. And my goal was like, can I just cut those things out? Even, I mean, on previous movies, I've had that moment where like you're, you're in post and you, know, you have a great performance, but there's one line that's off, but you sort of tell yourself this story of, oh, but I can't make the movie without that line. We have to know, blah, blah, blah. And so these is, I'd rather just cut out anything I think is not great and hope the audience can keep along with me rather than leave something in that I think is required. And I don't think I even do that perfectly. I think it's, it's, it's very hard to do that. Um, uh, but that's more what I'm aspiring to. Because again, I feel like, I don't feel like anyone leaves a movie and thinks, like an average moviegoer and thinks that their first comment is like, man, that movie was good at telling me the facts of that world. <laughs> right. And to me, it's sort of like the continuity thing. Right? I think sometimes we obsess over continuity. Um, and you need it sometimes, right? Obviously it can become distracting. But at a certain point, like what attracts people to movies is something different and something more, I think, subjective and visceral. And so hopefully if you can do that right, the other stuff sort of takes care of itself. Right. And a little can say a lot, you know, like you could just, it doesn't have to be a line of dialogue. It could just be like a, a shot that you give them with like a little bit of background that just like sets up the world that you're in. Um, it's like, I always feel like when I see it done really well, it seems so simple to me. And I'm always like, why is it so hard to come up with something so brilliant? And it's like, well, because it's brilliant and it's hard to come up with these small little yeah. things. Um, I think also we had the benefit today of, because people are actually more versed in sci-fi than they ever were, we can rely on their right, previous knowledge. Right. You know, like I feel like I watch my kids now and like they'll start watching a, you know, a new show and they'll just gesture at the idea of teleportation. They're like, yeah, yeah it's a teleportation machine, you know, like because they've seen four others, right? And so there doesn't need to be some expositional explanation of teleportation. They've just seen it a lot, right? And I actually think that's just true of audiences across the board. 
even complex ideas like, you know, like time slippage at light speed or like the idea of like alternate dimensions and different paths. Like, it's surprising how many crazy speculative ideas most of our audience has already experienced. And so you can sort of just riff on them. And I think you don't need to do all the setup right. anymore. It's, and there's like other examples, like Back to the Future is amazing with their exposition because they do it all through a, a really brilliant, like, you know, plot point in the movie where he's just, he's documenting, documenting what they're doing with this time machine. And in yes. the documentation, all the information that we need to know comes out, but it's done in a natural way where you don't feel like it's force fed to you. It's like, it's like that kind of thing is so smart, you know? It's also like the, the James Cameron way in Terminator where he, they just literally put up you know, one or two text cards and, and, and then the movie starts and then there's no exposition from there on. And you're like, okay, great, future, <laughs> robots, good. <laughs> so I wanted to ask about this, this Hollywood Reporter coverage that you got. Like, how did, you, how did that come about? Did you have a publicist? Did you know somebody? Like, how do you get that kind of ex exposure? So um, I, I learned, so many parts of the process i learned a ton on this project and but I, I really think like the thing that was the most new to me was putting a movie out in the world i had never made a feature and like all things i learned so many times a feature wasn't just oh it's like a short but a little bit bigger no it's a paradigm difference right like you guys know that it's like and so i got to the point where i finally got into a festival like i had been rejected by so many and we won this award at a festival and I was like, I need to tell people I won best feature at Sci-Fi London. What do I do? And who cares about that? Like, I was just at a loss. <laughs> Guess I tweet about it. Like, I just I didn't know what to do with that. And I had the sense that like this is rare. Like, Sci-Fi London is not the world's biggest film festival, but I won an award at a festival. Like, I think I should be able to capitalize. Well, in the sci-fi world, and it's a no huge idea. deal. So, like, like for me, I'm like bowing at you for getting in <laughs> and and winning. It's like, oh my god. The thing that I am good at doing, I think, is basically uh, asking other people for help. I sent out an email, literally an email, like a mass email to everybody I knew who had made a feature. And I was like, what do I do? And like, I got a lot of great DIY guerrilla answers, but like five of them were like, I know you don't think it's for you. I know it's gonna be more money than you wanna spend, hire a publicist. They're like, if you were like a feature that hadn't landed anywhere, they're like, I'm not sure, but like, but you have a thing that can be promoted. And you know, a, 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 this one Laurel, even that. And so I did, I, I, I bit the bullet um, and, uh, uh, and started reaching out to publicists. I started with like small boutique firms, like people I had known who'd done like production company made indie films, quickly discovered they were too expensive for me. Um, but also they didn't know what to do with me. Cause I wasn't like gonna have a multi-theater release or like a, you know, I didn't have a movie star. My litmus test was like, what would you do with a gritty, bleak, kind of <laughs> downer sci-fi movie with no stars? And I kept telling them like, here's my two aspirations. I would love to be nominated for that Cassavetes Award at the Independent Spirit Awards. Like that's my like, high point. I don't think I'm gonna get that, but that's like, that was like my, I was like, and, and, I, and it was more of a test. I said, how do you do that? Like hundreds you know? of thousands and they of dollars. Would always, <laughs> I mean, it's like. Yes, exactly, right? And then what would happen is a lot of them would return with like a, a pitch deck that was basically always for like a $5 million movie with a TV wow. star in it. You know what I mean? Like it was the same plan. I, I realized, <laughs> no, you got to find the publicists that are the equivalent to the actors and the DP that you worked with. Who are the people out there? And I found this publicist, Ginger Lou. She's based out of the UK. And 
she wrote me back an email and the, I knew I was right because she wrote me back. She's like, look, throw out all the other models. Um, look at what Jim Cummings did, you know? And she's like, look, you're not going to be as big as him. I love that candor, by the way. She's like, it's not going to be that big. She's like, but that's a model we could think about. And so then I basically went to publicity school. Like, I feel like she's basically a personal trainer. Like, they tell you to do your push-ups. You don't like your push-ups, but you do like the results, you know? Like, and, and so she just started me on this path of, like, little by little, you know, we reached out to the smaller blogs. I got the No Film School article, which was really big. That really helped us a lot. But the, the long, to get to the, where you're asking, all of that still did not break us through to Hollywood Reporter. Gravitas acquired the movie. And we decided to do, to release for a week in Hollywood in a theater. Wait, let me guess. Let me guess which theater. It's, um, it's oh, what's know. his name? Christian. Uh, yeah. Serena the Arena Cine Lounge. Yes. Because in LA proper, that's basically the only, way, only place you can book. There's a few places here and there, but it's like, there's not that many options, right? We booked for a week and, uh, you know, it turns out that's on the LA Times listing. It's a real theater. It is in the schedule. And the best I can tell you is this. Christian, who runs that theater, is always pounding the pavement to get coverage. I was pounding the pavement. We were in the listings. We were sci-fi. And John DeFore, who writes for The Hollywood Reporter, I think we caught him in a week when he wants to churn out four reviews and he only had three movies. And he looked at what was playing in theaters. And I do think it's an example of, like, it did matter that we were in a theater. He wasn't going to review that movie just because it was streaming, right. you know? The lesson I draw from that is actually a confusing one where I was like, you know what? I really believe in this new paradigm we're in, you know, like we should be having more direct relations with our audience. We should think about alternative ways to release. But the real truth was, I don't think we get that review without uh, the theater. And, and also things aren't like they used to be. We played for a week in a theater and the LA Times did not review us. <laughs> I feel like super fortunate to have gotten that review. And I think it was because I took a risk. Like I took basically the advance like gravitas offered me uh sort of two different options and i gave up a lot of the advance to have that um release i mean first it, i need to acknowledge just my overall all level of privilege like the the couple thousand dollars that i could give up i could just give that up because my wife's a tv writer and i teach at occidental but also i could give it up because i didn't owe investors money like i had made the movie with so cheaply half of it was kickstarter half of it was money that, you know, Brian's acting class money. You know, my wife and I delayed buying a new car for a year. Like we weren't under this pressure of we better take the highest money offer no matter what. And, and I knew that I had seen friends of mine make movies and at the end of it be so in debt that they had to take the highest money offer, which isn't always the best, like reach your audience, you know, establish the film offer. And so I felt again, really fortunate to be like, yep, uh, I'm lucky enough at this point to say, the difference in this in the couple thousand dollars in that advance i'll give it up and I'll, i want that theatrical it was this just really meaningful experience in terms of so many people came out of the woodwork and came and saw my movie you know like i would sit there in the lobby every day and it was like this is your life like former students of mine from other colleges film school professors that didn't know were coming would walk in the door my cousins showed up you know like and we had planned a premiere night we did all that and then we sold out like four or five of the shows in that week with just random ticket goers, but also I've been in LA 20 years and here is this like reunion uh, uh, for everyone to come through and sort of see the movie and see it together. Uh, and again, I feel fortunate that I could do that and have that uh, and not sort of, you know, have any, have a big financial cost to it. It don't seem like you're in 
a rush. I know that's like a really general statement to say in a podcast interview, but it's like you spent nine years making this movie. You have this wonderful perspective that you've garnered through the experience of going through that. I feel like a lot of filmmakers, I will include myself in that, feel like they're in a race against time. Um, what do you, like, tell us how to calm down and what's, you, like, what's your plan for your next film? I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's only a thing I've realized about myself very recently, but I think you're right, that's been true for a while. I think it comes, you know, I got out of film school in 2004. Um, right after I got out of film school, I was writing a comedy script with a friend of mine and uh, Cedric the Entertainer optioned it. And we were just like, it's on, we're done, we made it. You know, it was just like, and we had a great experience working with him and it didn't go anywhere. To be honest, I was really chasing like just any opportunity. And the truth is I, I didn't enjoy comedy and I didn't love the movie. And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna do what I I'm gonna get a movie made that I like. And I wrote a couple screenplays and did that just pitched. I had generals, you know, we uh, tried to get the movie set up and I, and I, and I had it like, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta get, the, get it set up. And I just spun and spun and spun for about four years. And then I realized in like 2008 that I hadn't shot a thing in four years. And again, I was like, I gotta do, I gotta do. And so I, I was like, web series are big. Uh, I made a web series pilot. It got optioned. I was really excited. And I was, and then it didn't go anywhere. And then I made a web series that I even sold and it didn't go anywhere. And basically in 2010, I realized I keep just like jumping from like wherever I think the opportunity is like, Ooh, is that hot? I'll try to do something over there. Is that, and I was just tired of it. And I also realized like, I think what I've been trying to do with this work up until now is like out Hollywood, Hollywood. Like I was going to like, Ooh, can I make a product that Hollywood will see recognize as one of its own and instantly accept into the full, but I made it for only a few hundred dollars. So I feel like there's this like certain attitude in some indie film circles that like the point of indie film is to like to mimic. amaze people yeah. with like how frugal you've been in Hollywood, right? Yeah. And I think I was at a point in my life, I was a little bit older, like I realized like I came to Los Angeles, I did this crazy thing with my life where I like got out of college and was like, I'm just going to LA, I'm gonna go to grad school in film, the, you know, one of the least practical decisions one can make. <laughs> but I didn't, I came here because like, I fell in love with like these filmmakers that had been making crazy, edgy, difficult movies, you know, and movies that not everyone loved, movies that weren't always commercially successful. Uh, and I was like, I want to do that. And I think there's not a new realization. Everyone says this. I needed to get out of the system where I needed someone else's permission. Right, right. No film school had published that like DSLR cinematography guide. And I read this like, whatever it was, 30 page PDF that was like, you can shoot a movie on a DSLR. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. Wow. And even the six months was the beginning of that. I was like, why do I always do these shoots where I'm like, hey, everybody, uh, can everyone give me four straight days, 12 hour days? We're gonna shoot an amazing short. Yeah, there's no, there's no food, no money. We're gonna eat pizza every day. We're gonna work crazy hours. But if we just sprint through it, we'll get a short film. And every time I did that on day three, I was exhausted. And I was like, okay, we have to just do a single, single master and move on because we don't have time for anything else. Yep. And I'd get home and just be like, why am I shooting standard coverage? Like I didn't come here to do this. You know, like I'm not a, like a, you know, I'm not a like three camera sitcom director. Like I want to like do something. And to me, I realized the key was slowing down was to making a process that I can control where I wasn't beholden to anybody else. I do hope that it is possible looking ahead to repeat the process a little quicker. And I think it can be, I think I need a little more money 
um, and I need a little more planning. But I think that I can, my next movie, I'm writing it right now. My hope is that, uh, again, for an amount of money that won't make me nervous about the money, but hopefully higher than the last time, I can make a movie uh, shooting in small blocks of time. I think we will do multi-day shoots, but uh, to try and do it, you know, two or three days at a time where people can get off work, but keep their job they're on and maybe shoot it over the, for over a couple month period. Um, but at this point, I'm not quite even thinking about making it. I'm still just writing. But I really want to hold on to this idea of like, we get to set and a cool shot just suddenly occurs to you. Or an actor comes up and is like, look, I know you thought of this character doing this in the scene, but like, what if we played it this way? And I want to still just be able to do that. Right. This block shooting is a very kind of pop, more popular idea that I think other filmmakers have been doing now where they, you know, you shoot like three days, you know, and then you take like four off and three days, four off or something like that. Hopefully this next one won't take uh, seven <laughs> years to shoot. Here's hoping. Like a lot of things that you said I wanted to comment on, like, you know, when I, when I was, before I made my first feature, I asked a DP who had shot 20 features, like what his advice was for me as a director. And he told me to do what you did, to shoot on weekends and take my time and not raise a bunch of money and try to shoot in 20 days because it'll kill me. And that's what I did. But, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not regretting what I did. I think it was good for me, but you know, I, I think taking your time is a really, gives you a lot of advantages, you know? Um, and being patient, I think is really, really huge because you know, we think that our, our careers are gonna end if we don't make our feature uh, by the time we're 30. And that's just not true at all. <laughs> that's complete bullshit. I'm 42 years old and you know, my movie just dropped on Amazon. Like it took me that long. Uh, but I, having, if you had asked me 10 years ago, would that be too late? Mm. I would have said yes. Having been here now. It's fine. I feel yeah. just satisfied. I made a movie and it's out, you know, like, and I guess that's probably a, a larger lesson for just all of life, um, not just filmmaking. Um, but you're right. Yeah. Um, all right. I have more questions, but we got to wrap this up. So we're going to go into our final sure. five. Um, I'll, I'll start again. Yeah. What's the first film you ever made or edited and how do you feel about it now? <laughs> uh, so in eight, in eighth, no, ninth grade, in my freshman year of high school, uh, my, our science teacher gave us an opportunity, instead of writing a paper, we could make a little movie. So we borrowed the like huge clunky VHS camera from the school and shot a sci-fi movie in my basement about going to uh, Jupiter. And I really wish I had a copy of it. It is gone, but I do know that the surface of Jupiter was black garbage bags covered with brown sugar that we stomped around on. Um, and we didn't even bother to cover up like the one wall of my basement that was clearly a basement wall. We were just like, yeah, don't look at that, even though it's in the shot. <laughs> um, and, and that was the very first film uh, that I shot and edited. Uh, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? It was from an Alexander Payne masterclass at UCLA. He said, before every shot, stand next to the camera and just ask yourself, is this what I want? And I think what he was getting at is that there's so much about the chaos of the process that we forget to actually ask ourselves that at the end we think about it at the beginning all the time we plan for it but there is this moment where like you roll and you get and you get into editing and you're like why didn't i change that or i knew i didn't want that to happen and i've adapted when i teach now the thing i tell my students i think the entire process of film directing can be summed up in a single question which is what do i want the audience to know and feel at this exact moment and then just do everything you can to have that happen and then just do it every one twenty-fourth of a second and so for me, it's just that moment of like pausing for a moment, even though it seems like we're all in a rush and we all work to get to this moment, we're ready to roll, just to pause. Is it what I want? And then to have the courage, and it's hard for me, 
to not shoot if it's not right yet um is i think that the thing i've learned that's great advice um do you have a goal as a filmmaker i think to keep making movies that i feel like only i would make that you know like to keep putting a film out in the world that wouldn't exist if i wasn't there all right if you could go back in time what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself it sounds like you already i'm not gonna i'm not gonna push anything you say you answer the question <laughs> I mean, I think that kind of like what Ulrich said earlier, in some ways, like, you don't want to take back anything you've done. It's, the, it's what led you to where you are. But for sure, no, I, I think that I had a period of time in my 20s where I had all the privilege, a lot of the privilege that I have now, but I didn't have uh, a teaching job or kids. And I think, you know, I probably could have used that time, not like in a rush way, but like, I should have had more courage. I should have tried to make a feature and even have it fail. But I think I was afraid of wanting to do it perfect and having it be blessed by the industry. Now I kind of realize like it would have been okay if I made a bad one and, it, and, and I didn't need Hollywood to let me know that, to, let, to give me permission. And then last question, is making movies hard? It is the most difficult and the most enjoyable thing I know. All right, well, where can people find you and your film, Aleem? So After We Leave is on Amazon Prime in North America. So you can stream it there. You just search for After We Leave. And uh, I am on Instagram at Aleem Hossein, A-L-E-E-M-H-O-S-S-A-I-N. And uh, on my website too, AleemHossein.com. I wish we had like five more hours, genuinely. I know, this seriously. Was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. It was great talking to you guys. And I really want to say, like, you know, your podcast and, and you guys are sort of like old, whole ethos about indie film, like, helped me through this process. Like, I was in post already, you know, listening to what you guys did. Liz, I read your Sundance distribution thing. Like, it really helped in the process. So, thank you for what you do. Oh, oh wow. Yay. Touching. All right, thanks everyone for listening and thanks to Aleem Hossein for coming on the show and being so patient with us on the release of this episode. We recorded this a long time ago, um, but After We Leave is out now. Um, so check it out on, on Amazon. I think it's on iTunes. I don't know. I just wanted to say one more thing about this. It's just like an amazing story of like this filmmaker who is like, doesn't give a shit about what the rest of the world says. It's like, oh yeah. You, you think I should like make a movie and turn it out really quickly and I that's the only way to like have a career and I'm gonna just who, what's gonna happen to me if I don't move fast enough whatever he's like no I'm gonna make my movie over eight nine years I take my time get it the way I want and I'm gonna release it and then if I want to I'll make another movie if I don't I won't and maybe I'll take another 10 years it doesn't matter it's like perspective and his approach to filmmaking was very different than um, most filmmakers especially myself so uh, it was refreshing but yeah, you can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find the links to the things we talked about in this episode, including the trailer for After We Leave and other uh, works by Aleem. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. I am RFB on Twitter and Ulrich Purcell on Instagram, apparently, and Liz. Where are you? I'm Liz Manish on Twitter, Liz Manish on film on Instagram, and I'm actually attempting to create a YouTube channel for myself. Whoa. I'm, I'm trying to learn YouTube so that I can help us out a little bit. So if you want to follow and watch my student shorts from 10 years ago, so thrilling, sexy, sexy opportunity, uh, please do. If you like the show, you can tell a friend, you can help us get the word out by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of the other places the comments can be left, YouTube, for instance. Anyways, thanks again for everyone for listening and we will talk to you next week. If you want, you can get in contact with us. You can, if you want, God damn it. You pulled a Liz.